Welcome to an episode of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, brought to you by In the Black Canada and Deep Visions Media. I am your host, Donna Paris, coming to you from Toronto. In the spirit of reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada, I, Donna Paris, solemnly pledge to learn more about Indigenous peoples and issues to not perpetuate stereotypes in my conversations or observations, to read the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's 94 calls to action, to read the 231 calls for justice in the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, and to actively encourage ongoing support of National Indigenous Peoples Day every June 21st and National Day for Truth and Reconciliation on September 30th. And you can find this pledge at Indigenous Corporate Training Inc. at www.ictinc.ca. I give gratitude and thanks. I'm so pleased to be here today with Shana Lorraine Jones, who was born in Chicago, Illinois, USA, but has called Canada home since she was four years old. Shana's mother was born in Alabama and her father in St. Louis, Illinois. Shana has two brothers and is raising three children in Caswell, BC in Canada and says she is grateful for the land she lives on. Shana is an award-winning professional performance artist specializing in the traditional oral storytelling of African and Afro-diasporic folklore and has performed for audiences across Canada. Shana is the creator and lead on an amazing project that I want her to share with us called Black and Rural. Black and Rural is a nationally funded project through which Shana, and I'm quoting from the website, aims to seek out and honor and showcase stories from rurally based Blacks like herself to nuance and challenge the monolith of what matters to Black lives. And I really thank Carol Lafayette Boyd for introducing me to you. And thank you, Shana, for sitting down with me today. Great to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. I usually start with asking questions about ancestors. And as I said, your parents were born in the US, as were you. What do you know about their ancestors' journeys to the U.S. and what their and your parents' lives were like being Black? My family has been on this land, on Turtle Island, since the slave trade. So that's how our earliest ancestors would have first touched land here. And as everybody knows, nobody kept any record of the Africans who were brought over. Um, so the best we know is that we are West African origin. You know, over the years, many people lay claim to, you know, the features they see on my face or in our faces and claim that, you know, you must be Nigerian or you must come from Cameroon. <laughs> um, so that gives me hints about where we would be from. My great-grandmother grew up on a sharecropping, uh, as a sharecropper. Her parents would have been emancipated from slavery. So we're pretty entrenched in that lineage. Mm -hmm. Um you mentioned that you feel your grand, you know your grandmother is with you. My grandmothers are very strongly with me. They all died before I was born, but I feel their, their strength very much in me because I know through stories from my father and some of my aunties that they lived through, they were in the deep and dirty South in the United States, and they lived through the most atrocious Jim Crow law that existed in Mississippi and Alabama and all those places and my father describes his mother my grandmother as a very gentle soul kind of a, like a lamb his father was a lion and he recalls that with all his mother's strength 
he has vivid memories of her lowering her head when crossing, you know, a white couple on the street kind of thing. And, right. and just how deeply entrenched that just racial shit <laughs> um, was just in that generation. My father himself, I didn't grow up with my mother, so I just had my father. When they got off the sharecropping lands, moved into the city, and they lived in East St. Louis, which is a really rough place to be, overrun with gang violence and drugs. And it's a ghetto. And so my dad grew up in this ghetto. And my grandmama, Ollie Ree, they were poor, but she always made sure there was something on the table, even if it was small. The effects of the history of the slave trade, uh, the oppression of Black peoples, uh, yes, our strength is very strong very prevalent in my family um, but that history and the the wounds we carry collectively <laughs> lives on through my family and to make this long answer to your question slightly shorter I was born in Chicago yes but it came to pass that my dad got work opportunity in Vancouver and he came out to Vancouver first to test out the job and when he was in Vancouver it was a paradise compared to the places in the United States where we were. And so he uh, packaged me up and had me shipped out to Vancouver when I was a little girl so that we could start fresh. And that's how we ended up here. That's some of the, that's some of the story. And what do you remember about first arriving here in Vancouver? You know, I don't have a lot of memory from the first days as a little girl, but I moved to an area where me and my father were one of the only Black folks around. Vancouver is very low black population and the area in Vancouver I was in had nobody but us and and that remained the case for my life. The lack of blackness was uh, something I remember. Do you remember learning anything about black Canadian history in school? Other than you know the underground railroad which you learn in the ninth grade. Um, I think that's a part of the curriculum and when in the ninth grade. No, nothing. I mean, maybe there was something, but it was clearly not significant enough that I have any memory of. So. And when you were confronted with racism, what advice did your dad give you, or, or if any? So my dad was, is of a generation and was from a neck of the woods where he would just say, like, Shana, like if somebody ever dared hit me or, or anything like that, he'd say, Shana, you just hit him right back. <laughs> That's what my dad would say. <laughs> I had to exhibit a judgment on that one as a kid. <laughs> um, but my, my dad was a very strong example of upright blackness and um, he, he was and I spoke with him this morning we're very close and he to this day is um, just through his own example of strength in his heritage and in his blackness uh, I soaked that in and um, nice. yeah but he would never let anybody don't let anybody call you a name don't let anybody hit you you stand up and you, you hit him right back <laughs> <laughs> he followed Malcolm X rather than Martin Luther King, if that means anything to you. So, <laughs> exactly what you mean. <laughs> oh, you probably have those pictures of yourself as the only black face in a sea of white in your school pictures. And what was it like for you being in a school like that? And what was your interaction with other students and your teachers? Oh, I was in a very Asian part of town. And I even had an Asian stepmother. She was Filipino. I think I was maybe too young to pick up if there was anything like I, if we're talking about, you know, 
sensitivity to my color and my race. There were kids who would make jokes about me or you know, call me names. And, and there were, yeah, I just, I don't think I had enough awareness to, to know why, you know, teachers would treat me a certain way. Was it I, was I just a bratty kid? Maybe I was just a brat and needed to be <laughs> dealt with. Or, um, you know, maybe some of it was unjust. I can't, I can't speak to that, to that particular question with a lot of uh, resolution. But I do know that it was like to this day, a lot of the work I'm doing now is for the sake of the little girl that I was like mm-hmm. being the only black one feeling my blackness, even if I didn't articulate this as being the abnormal thing or being less than or as being something to try to cover up or, you know, somehow, you know, like always seeing the light-skinned ones around me as as my marker of what I should be and what is beautiful and what makes sense and what has a place in the world. That kind of implicit stuff mm-hmm. is the stuff I'm still working through to this day. You know? right. And it started yeah. off as a kid. I um, grew up on an armed forces base and we were the only black family until I was in grade six. Everybody else was white. There were no even any other people of color there. And I remember being very young, I learned very early that being black was not a good thing. That's the message we got. And I remember every night sort of praying, dear God, please just let me wake up and be white tomorrow. Because somehow I thought if I was white that it, all my problems were gonna be solved. And thank goodness she didn't listen to me or whoever didn't listen to me because uh, I'm glad to be a black person. And, and pleased and proud of my blackness. Um, yeah. That's what it was like. I internalized a lot of the things I heard about what black people are or were or supposed to be. And like you, this journey is part of my still working through some of that today. Yeah. Yeah. The We Are Sorry folk page opens with the words, through our flesh, through our blood, through our spirit, through our stories, may we find our way home. That's how I feel as I journey across this country and I collect these stories. I'm finding my way home. And as I mentioned, I feel like my ancestors are walking with me and encouraging me and say, yes, tell our stories and go forward and make your own. What do those words mean to you? I have had to find my, my sense of grounding and my sense of connection through listening and through story. And, you know, I say through our flesh and through our blood, like, I have a, a, an elder, a wise, beautiful woman in my life from Cameroon. And she is an auntie. So she's a, like an official auntie. One day, a few many years ago, when there was another person with us, and I think that other person was talking about, you know, sending in their, their spit sample to a website to find out where they're from. And, and right. this woman, Jackie, she said, you know what you need to do is to lay down on the earth and listen to, if you can't have, you know, if you can't have it live, find recordings of traditional patterns from various regions across Africa. Lay on the ground and listen to these drum rhythms. The ones, the one or the ones that you feel the closest resonance with. This tells you something of where you are from. Listen to the rhythm of the drum that will tell you and that stuck with me because I know she's right and I find that same principle applies 
like as I study folklore, that I'm drawn to particular stories from particular regions or the ones that have gotten into me, the ones that I find I am telling. I hear them, I listen, and I want to speak it out. That's like the drum rhythm for me. And so, you know, this line of mine, you know, through our flesh, through our blood, listening to the skin, to this exact flesh, God created me, this woman. So listen to this, (laughs) that will give me a clue to what my home is. That's what it means to me. And the home, yes, I mean Mama Africa herself, but I also mean like home for our spirit, home for a home is multifaceted and multidimensional. And I think it is through flesh, blood, spirit, and stories where we find our way there. So yeah, that's my word. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Can you paint a picture for us of your rural setting where you live? So I live in a mountainous little village. It's called Caslow's Little Village, 800 people. But Caslow's too big and bustling for me. So I've moved outside of town. And uh, mountains and lake demographically if that's what you're asking like I don't know the exact one but just from my sense it feels like it's 97 percent pretty homogeneously white mm-hmm. um, I can count the number of black folk on one hand we're not anywhere near one another there's maybe three of us and one man comes every once in a while <laughs> and, uh, and then my kids there's a few other cultures but very little it's mostly white the real diversity is in the wild the life um that's where the diversity is. <laughs> what are the animals that you would see there? Cougars and black bears and grizzlies. Oof. They stay up the mountain, which is where I want them to stay. <laughs> um, we have lots of coyotes. There's wolves um, higher up in the mountains. There are beautiful eagles and osprey, another beautiful hunting bird, vultures, uh, higher up in the mountain too the lake is full of trout and pike and Mm. lots of creatures wonderful so what is raising your children in Caslow? what has it given them and what are they getting that they wouldn't get living in an urban setting and what are they not getting to experience because they're living in an urban setting i mean that's sort of three questions in one but yeah i understand so what i'm hoping they get is uh so they're young they're eight six and four it's my hope it's my prayer that their baseline for being is the earth their baseline for being is the natural world that they are conversant with how to be at peace and joyful and just with the beauty of the earth you know that's my hope um as a baseline Mm -hmm. you know plant that seed young they will go where they will as they get older but this will be in them and um that's what i hope that they get that i don't think i could offer them if we were gridlocked in a city right Uh, one of the things that i know that they miss out is like i said it's uh there is a lack of diversity human diversity cultural diversity here Mm -hmm. luckily because of the nature of my work i can take my kids into into city settings and you know I was in Vancouver for two months doing a theater gig and they um, got to be in Vancouver and we, we rode the bus and I, I wanted to make sure that I like really exposed them to like listen to all the languages on the bus like listen like you know <laughs> so I get to take them out into that but they even more so than I had 
this is where like the, the, the saddest thing, and it's a trade-off I've chosen right now, is that they very much have whiteness as the baseline of normality, normalcy. Mm-hmm. And mama is an abnormality in the town. It's just subconscious, you know, they, they see it. And their little friends, you know, say things and they have to deal with their little friends. And, and um, I homeschool my kids and uh, partially so that they can be out of the system that teaches them you know, one thing only because it really strikes my heart as I watch them. And all I can do is what my father gave to me, which is to do all the work I can to embody my grandmothers and my heritage and my skin with dignity and strength so that when they think of blackness in their life they, and they think of their mother, it's with pride, it's with strength, you know, and that's how I think of my father. And But it's a trade-off, like, it is a trade-off. That is a deficit in their life. Yeah. Well, I think if they have that, as you say, the blackness deep inside of them and that sense, doesn't matter where in the world they go, that goes with them. Exactly. Yeah. That's my prayer. <laughs> my hope. Tell us about your performances, where you go, what you do. Yeah, it's a little bit eclectic. So this is how I earn my living. I am one of those ridiculous souls kind of piecing together a living in a very funny way and so my bread and butter is folklore, telling folklore, specifically Afrocentric folklore. And I weave together folk narratives that speak to me. And I, and I, and I usually create a set of just plain Jane oral storytelling, but I'm quite, I move a lot. I embody my words quite a bit. And I just fill up a grand space just on my lonesome. In my oral storytelling work, schools are very receptive. And so I've been to hundreds and hundreds of schools, almost everywhere in BC and then all across Canada as well. Many festivals, uh, like folk festivals and storytelling festivals, bringing my treasure trove of, of stories to these festivals all across the country as well. That comes from my background in live theater. So like I said, I was in Vancouver and I did uh, a stage production called The Mountaintop, which was about the last few hours of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. And I got to spend just beautiful seven weeks just focusing on bringing this story to life, but as an actor. And those kinds of gigs were peppered throughout my storytelling work. And the latest leg of my work is, it was just time for me to expand out of only focusing on traditional material to create my story shows, but to also listen to contemporary material, i.e. to interview, as you are doing, people here and now, and then to weave their stories into the folklore that I'm telling. And that's how the Black and Rural, that's one of the things that led to my Black and Rural work. And that's been a big part of my life for the past couple of years, is this process of listening and weaving story together. And that's what I was doing in Saskatchewan. That's what I'll continue to do. That's kind of what I, I do for a living. So, And can you tell us a bit more about the Black and Rural Project? What kind of stories have you heard and what that's been leading to? So, I mean, it's a whole other podcast series for how I ended up living where I'm living now. Having been born in Chicago, growing up in Vancouver, I've been here for about six years. Like my experience in Vancouver is not too unlike my experience out here in terms of being in a situation where I am one of the only Black folks. Now, that would be different in Vancouver now and and if I had been older I could have pieced together much more black community in the city 
-hmm. But um, living where I am now, it is not possible to, in the flesh, create Black community around myself. But it's a trade-off I've chosen because the land, my vibrational attunement, like my, my, my wellness is so much fuller when I live with, like I said, for my kids, where my baseline is the earth itself. My baseline for being is the earth itself. Right. Then I am better equipped to live my life. Because of the beauty of that, I accept what comes with being one of the only Black folks around. I accept that trade-off. I guess just in 2020, a part of it, when Black life was suddenly on center stage and suddenly everybody cared about Black folks with the, the death of George Floyd and mm -hmm. the exposure of so many deaths happening in the city. And, and I was already sitting in these themes but I found myself wondering, the popular story you get is of folks in the city. The story you get of Blackness is tied to urban life, is tied to, you know, holding a megaphone and marching down the street. And like, at least at that time, the depictions of Blackness looked nothing like, had no room for a quiet Black woman tucked on a mountain. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and it got me wondering about are there other Black folks who have chosen like I have chosen? Whatever their reasons, but there are there other Black folks who have gone against the popular culture idea of what Blackness is? And if they have, why? Like, what is their story? <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And what is life like for them in their little quiet settings? And are they as drawn to the land as I am drawn? Uh, you know, like, what is it for them that has them choosing to live in spaces where more often than not, they are an extreme minority, like I am. And so I found myself hungry to listen to those tucked away Black voices specifically. One just for my own self, like I just wanna know, I just wanna hear, just for me, to help me. Uh -huh. And then I've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of people over the last little while, and we do exist, we are, there's many little little folks tucked away, and. And the thing that's been most powerful is actually often just been in the moment of conversation. For us both to be brought to tears, to be able to articulate an experience that is not often, there's not often room to listen to this particular experience mm -hmm. of being Black out in the country in Canada from within it. Like, as one who's living it too. <laughs> right. And, and so I've had so many conversations where we've both, this is why I don't come at it, like I come at it as an artist, I come at it as, a, as, as from within it, like I'm not academic, so I'm allowed to cry with the person I'm listening to. Like, so we, we're brought to tears. And, and the tears come not just because we're talking about hardship, but it's just to have been the affirmation that comes from just having our experience acknowledged yeah. having this experience you know called forth mm -hmm. that has been the most meaningful thing for me and I've heard it from many folks that that's what's been meaningful for them mm -hmm. um, I could spend my life doing this and I might <laughs> I know through the uh, Saskatchewan African Canadian Heritage Museum and Heritage Saskatchewan all of that you've moved into Saskatchewan What's next after this? Are you planning to go across the country? The way this Black and Rural work started 
was actually just an open call to hear from anybody in the country all at once. And then Saskatchewan pinned me down and asked if I would focus on their province to create what I created for them. The next immediate steps for me is taking the stories I've collected thus far, and I've been commissioned to weave them into more of a play, like a, it'll be my storytelling work, but it'll be produced on a stage in, Van in Vancouver, and there's a couple theater companies coming together. Uh, and I'm still in the writing process, but they're backing it. Let me do what I want with these stories. So the next stage of these, this next um, couple of seasons is taking the material I have right now and weaving them into a theatrical production, like I said, on the website there. And that production, uh, the aim is to have that production tour through BC, but I would love to be able to take it across the country. Is my aim is to take the production across the country. And then I'm partnered with a museum here in, in my region, a beautiful museum, who uh, would like to do actually very similar to what you were saying you, you guys are, are working towards as well, which is to take the specific Black and rural stories and, and have a small gallery exhibition of them as well, and to take some of the, the things collected so far so that at least people in this area can be exposed to them. This Black and rural work is, is just quite resonant and in alignment just with my own living. And so, like I said earlier, like I think I could be doing this my whole life. I'm listening for ways that I could be doing this my whole life. The work I do calls me out into cities quite a bit. And the work I do has me traveling away from my little rural home. But then I meet many people and I have this vision, especially if I come across black artists who are in the city grind all the time. I would love to actually be the bridge to bring some of these black artists into the, the wilderness spaces that I'm in. Um, and to give black and rural a little bit more of a like invitation to come experience um, feel mold to it but that would be many years down the road I'm still in the, the story receiving and story sharing phase I realize there's so much and there's so many yeah. different ways to tell these stories right what you're doing is incredible. What Cheryl Fogel is doing is incredible. What, what you're doing is incredible. Thank you. It's just, that's what I'm finally discovering that it is, there's plenty of space for all of us and there's so much more to explore and to tell. And so I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And I really thank you so much for sharing what you did with me today. I really do appreciate that. It's been a good conversation. Thank you for listening to me and making space for me. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. All right. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in. Be sure to check out our website, www.intheblackcanada.ca to listen to Black Canadians from across this country talk about their experiences and those of their ancestors of being Black in Canada. And if you have a story to tell, contact us through the website or at intheblackcanada at gmail.com. You can catch more episodes of I Am Black History, Our Voices, Our Stories, wherever you get your podcasts.